When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash A-P-P-S. Thank you, QXMD. You know, I get a lot of people with the literature review series and people kind of ask, how do I keep up on things? And I wish I had like a, a, a magic pill or something where we would just know all the things that's been published. But QXMD and their feature read can definitely help. So you can kind of fill out what, um, you know, areas you're most interested to. Maybe it's CRT, maybe it's ARDS, maybe it's, you know, COPD, what have you. So you can kind of customize. They send um, little, little uh, briefings to your inbox. So it's really nice there. Uh, we had an awesome, awesome last episode with Haley Peters discussing rapid sequence intubation or all things RSI. Um, it's a really great precursor to our episode today with a friend of the pod and now recurring guest, Andrea Sikora Newsom. So this is just a fantastic episode. Eventually, we'll we'll do like a kind of two-part episode series. I guess we'll informally call this like the basic or the intro episode, kind of part one. So we'll discuss, you know, more about the ventilator, what do terms mean, get our glossary out, um, different settings, indications, what our normal numbers are, what are bad numbers, what are good numbers, all those kinds of things. And then we'll get into some of the fun stuff like, um, you know, an, a respiratory delivered aerosolized or inhaled medications, things like that. So if you're staying up to date with critical care or pharmacotherapy literature, listening to the pod, you're probably familiar with Andrea and her background. But just in case you are not, guess what? We're going to read a little bit for you here anyways. So Andrea is currently a clinical assistant professor. Um, quick aside, big announcement here. Happy to announce that she's getting promoted to associate professor in July. So that's unbelievable. Awesome news here. She works at the University of Georgia College of Pharmacy on the Augusta campus. Now, she works as a critical care float pharmacist for the Augusta University Medical Center. Recently, she completed the Georgia Clinical and Translational Science Alliance, or CTSA, the KL2 Scholar Program, and received her Master's of Science in Clinical Research. She's also newly a fellow of critical care medicine. Literally all the things, all the good things Andrea has, and so glad that she's here with us today. Andrea, glad to be talking to you today. Appreciate you taking the time. How are things going down south? Oh, 
delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me back. I am excited to be talking about one of my favorite topics today. <laughs> and it is hot here, but life is good. <laughs> it is. Is it one of those hots where like you do a 10 minute walk and you wonder how you get, how you got sticky? Is it kind of that weather that we're in right now? Or is that later? No, that is right now. I actually, as we came over here, I was wanting to cool down before I got to my office and you called because it is a little sticky. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, but the thing is, is that everyone's dealing with it. So it's just a don't ask, don't tell. We're not putting hands up. Don't be putting arms around the back, all the things. So at least it's kind of everyone's going through it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, very happy to have you on because you mentioned that this is kind of one of your uh, favorite topics. And I would say that, like, I don't know if this is something that you felt when you have learners with you, but this tends to be one that people love skipping over. Or if you're talking about your patient trying to figure them out, they'll kind of glance over the vent settings. They, they may be familiar with them, but not necessarily know what they are. What do they mean? How does this apply to our meds and all the things? Is that what, what's your general um impression of people's comfort with the ventilator? I think you nailed it on the head. Uh, a lot of times this is something you learn on the job. I remember the first time I had this topic discussion, the guy that delivered it, he threw at me all the terms that we're going to discuss today. And I remember thinking this feels like grammar school, like a vocabulary <laughs> lesson in terms of all the different things. I probably attended the version of this talk a half a dozen or more times trying to at least get all the words right. Um, and it's taken a long time to even be able to do the cursory job I'll do today. <laughs> so yeah, your take is right on. <laughs> it's, it's one of those where, you know, sometimes when you have, uh, patients who come in and, and English is, is not their, their native language or they don't speak it and you have someone else kind of speaking a different language and you're listening to the interpreter. Sometimes when you first get introduced to the ventilator, that's kind of what you hear these terms and you know that you're, they're going in one ear, but you're kind of figuring out what to do with them here. So hopefully this will be a great precursor. We'll get some people a little more comfortable, um, with the ventilator, some of the things that it can do. Yeah. Now, what are some broad indications for mechanical ventilation? Like, generally speaking, why do patients get put on the ventilator in the first place? So, this is a great introductory question and it's deceptively easy. And I will answer you technically in a second, but I want to just say a couple of things to really kind of highlight why the listeners should keep listening for the next hour about us talk about this. And so, I'll go back to, uh, my neurosciences ICU, my first ICU rotation, the rotation that made me fall in love with critical care to begin with. And I was really trying to impress my preceptor. And so I would know, do my best to know all the things about the patients. And then at the end, she'd say, so why are they in the unit? And Nick, she could stump me like every time. I was like, I don't know why they're in the unit. <laughs> and you know, eventually I started to figure out that a good answer for her was, well, they're intubated and they're on the ventilator. And which, of course, brings you to the next million dollar question, which is, why are they on the ventilator? Yeah. <laughs> At which point, I was once again totally stumped. Um, and I love this, that it's like a classic kind of trainee oversight where you kind of miss the forest for the trees. But sometimes it can be a little bit of a classic pharmacist thing, too. We're so into the details of something, you can't look out and say, like, why is the patient intubated and how are we getting them out of the unit? You know, that is ultimately our goal, right, is to get them basically out of the unit and therefore off the ventilator. Yep. And you know, then you think from pharmacy school, you know, you're taught about, you know, medication-related problems, your drug-related problems, identifying and preventing and fixing them and so forth. And so 
I started to adopt this, and don't get me wrong, it's a bad joke, but I, my joke is that a lot of times in the ICU, the vent is actually the patient's biggest drug-related problem. Uh, in that, you know, if you think about it, at any given point, you've got stress ulcer prophylaxis and chlorhexidine and three different types of sedatives and all sorts of good stuff, albuterol, you know, we know we're going to put that on there. And so if you want to get all those things dealt with, then you have to come back to, okay, what are we doing with this ventilator? Um, so when I think about this, what I really like people to think about is one, why were they intubated originally, which could be one reason. And then today, this moment, why are they currently intubated? And it can be a different reason, um, sometimes because something has happened potentially iatrogenically where we've caused a problem. But I think kind of knowing, did you fix the original problem and are we fixing some new problem we've created are important. But uh, to answer the question most technically, I would think of it in terms of three kind of big buckets, which is hypoxemic respiratory failure or a failure to oxygenate, hypercapnic respiratory failure or a failure to ventilate, and then airway protection. Um, I've also seen this listed as apnea, which is not technically wrong. And I've also seen some people add in um, work of breathing as a reason. Um, and I will talk about those as well. One of my favorite things to kind of go through is this classic pulmonologist attending question that they like to get the medical residents with, which is one of the five causes of hypoxemic respiratory failure. So I'll just review those real quick. Mm -hmm. So the first is potentially hypoventilation. Um, which is like obesity-related or potentially apnea, uh, ventilation, perfusion, mismatch, or VQ mismatch. That's the one everyone likes to throw around. I think it just sounds real snazzy, VQ mismatch. Um, but pneumonia is maybe a classic example for that. Um, then you have right-to-left shunt or anatomic shunt, or you've got flow going the wrong direction, uh, diffusion impairment, things like pulmonary fibrosis, and then reduced atmospheric pressure. From there, we think about hypercapnic respiratory failure, things like COPD, severe asthma, or stuff like neuromuscular skeletal diseases like myasthenia gravis and so forth. Of course, you can have mixed hypoxic hypercapnic respiratory failure uh, as an option as well. Uh, from there, we move into airway protection. And this is basically to prevent a patient from aspirating because that will, if you aspirate, you will then quickly develop one of the other types of respiratory failure that would cause us to need you to be intubated. So the acute Ron you can remember is GCS less than eight intubate. So if you have a Glasgow coma score less than eight, you would intubate. So, you know, traumatic brain injury, surgery, mm -hmm. so forth. Um, you will note in there, nowhere did I say does not follow command. Um, and again, my kind of bad joke to this point is that babies do not follow command. And many people in nursing homes do not follow commands, but none of them are, are intubated and need to be mechanically ventilated. Um, so although it is maybe ideal that they are, have you know, appropriate mental status, we're really talking about protection of the airway. Do they have a strong cough and gag? Um, perhaps one of my most fun facts that I just like to tell everyone is about work breathing. Um, so generally speaking, about 1% to 3% of our total oxygen consumption in a healthy adult goes towards the process of breathing, like basically making your muscles move uh, in order to inhale and exhale. But when you move into shock states like sepsis, you can actually move that number up to like 20% of your overall oxygen consumption. And this is a, an unsustainable physiologic yeah. state. And so at some point, yeah, exactly. I mean, 20% is like a lot. Um, <laughs> if I 
can sound a little bit like a valley girl there. So yeah, twenty percent is is not a not a sustainable state. And so sometimes you will see someone will they will say, oh, they were septic and had increased work of breathing, and we we intubated kind of almost prophylactically because they saw that. And you can see like the, you know the intercostal muscles moving and, and things like that. So those are kind of the general to me main categories of, of why you would see someone intubated in the unit. I think that's a a really good kind of going back to one of the things you said kind of in the beginning basically mentioning that the, um, you know, the ventilators, the patient's kind of biggest drug related problem. And I think that we can get tied into the details of all the problems that arise from the ventilator, right? Getting lost in the forest, but you're missing the trees, i.e. how do we get the patient off the ventilator that can solve, that'll instantly take care of six of these problems that we're having to deal with potentially multiple times a day. So I think that's a, I think that's a really, really good analogy. And also we are here for all of the fun facts and jokes and all of the things. So keep them coming because (laughs) that is, that is a, um, I would say that that's a huge strength of yours um, in terms of bringing, (laughs) bringing info to the pod, but I think that's great. And the work of breathing things, you know, I think that ultimately if, if they're using that much, um, you know, they're requiring that much consumption. It's unsustainable. Let's get them now while they still have some sort of SBO2 so that we're not urgently intubating once they've already crashed and then we're kind of up a creek without a paddle. Yeah, absolutely. So how do our principles of critical care, um, apply to patients who are mechanically ventilated? Because I think inherently, you know, when we think about the ventilator, we think it's like, oh, that's something that the physician's taking care of. They're going through it with the respiratory therapist. But are there opportunities kind of for pharmacist interventions as they relate to the ventilator itself? I, I love to tell the story where I was with a preceptor on rounds and I remember I invited him specifically over, even though I was a PGY2 resident, because I was like, this person's really complicated. I feel like I don't know what's going on. And I would just like you to like listen to the presentation with me so that I can maybe we can talk about it later. And so we go through the whole presentation. We talk about all the different meds and all these different things. So we have some nice, you know, good medication interventions, but we were still struggling with the respiratory status. We weren't sure what to do. And I just remember he, he shrugs his shoulders and goes, well, are we going to try AP or V or what? And at, up to that point, no one had thought of that. And it was the pharmacist that said it. And we tried AP or V and it worked. And so, you know, I never want to stop the fact that, you know, anyone can have a good idea. And I think that's the beauty of team-based interprofessional care. Um, and so I will forever remember that. Although, you know, I usually think of us as, you know, more related with, are we managing the diuretics when the patient has pulmonary edema and so forth. But mm-hmm. I thought that was probably one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So, um, but when I get, I love the principles of critical care and I'm happy you let me talk about it again. I think I talked about it on the last pod too, but I think this is just really important as a teaching moment when you have students and residents with you. And I think it's important when you evaluate critical care literature is looking at, okay, what is this intervention? What bucket is this intervention in? And how should I evaluate risk benefit? So generally speaking, our principles are that we're going to treat the underlying cause. So treat why you're in the unit. Uh, My classic example here is if you have pneumonia, we're going to give you antibiotics. That would be treating the underlying cause. We're going to provide you supportive care in that process um, with mechanical ventilation, in this case being a great example of supportive care. And this is going to allow time for reversal of the primary indication, potentially pneumonia here. And in the process, we're going to try not to kill the patient. So we're going to minimize iatrogenic harm. And I think this is 
especially important with regards to the ventilator in that um, ventilator-induced lung injury and, you know, associated infections of, you know, ventilator-associated pneumonia, sinusitis, you know, just general ICU deconditioning are all pretty significant adverse effects of being intubated. And so I think it's really important to realize that any, a lot of things that pharmacists do reduce time on the ventilator. And we have, we have shown benefit with that outcome. And I think that's a very patient-centered, important outcome that we can, uh, that we can affect. Yeah, I think it's, <laughs> the literature is clear that in the things that we get involved with, we're able to make some, some headway in terms of improvements there. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I should say one other thing just in general is to realize that, you know, for ICU patients, uh, of which many, I the number is now eluding me because, of course, we're on the podcast, but a significant number are intubated. Uh 30% or more of ICU patients will be prescribed more than 28 medications, and 70% will have more than 13 medications. I just think anytime you've got 20 medications involved with any patient, you want a pharmacist involved. And I think that a lot of times, again, that the ventilator is a very important intervention, and to at least just have, you know, baseline understanding of what's happening and how that is maybe interacting with your 20-plus meds is uh, a really important thing. Now, I think what will probably be helpful for us as we're trying to kind of dive in here is, and I think it's probably been a while for for a lot of us listening, but let's kind of give a brief review of our respiratory cycle. How complex is it, you know, is the physiologic functions of what our ventilators basically trying to reproduce or, or recreate when we're sick? Yeah. So I remember the first few times when I was looking at reading about ventilators and ventilator modes and settings. And I just was overwhelmed by the complexity and the nuances. And it felt like, oh, well, you can do intermittent mandatory ventilation, but you can also do synchronized. And sometimes there's combinations of both. And I, it was just an overwhelming thing until I really started to understand that at its basis, we are essentially man and a machine trying to imitate a very complicated process within nature. And you don't necessarily take you don't think about your breathing in a way, you know, consciously every day, but it really is a very complicated and beautiful process. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, when you think about these different settings and the different variables that we're going to talk about, they're going to um, in some way control one of the four phases of um, the inspiration and, and exhalation process. So I think of it as kind of phase one is the transition from exhalation to inspiration. And from there, you have phase two, which is actually taking in your breath uh, or inhalation. And then you have phase three, which is the transition from inhaling to exhaling. And then phase four is the exhalation process. And from there, there are, this is another one of those classic pulmonologist attending questions where they say, what are the three primary variables for a, for a ventilator? And they're generally looking for you to say trigger, target, and cycle. And so trigger is what starts the inspiration phase. It is the start of phase one, if you will. Um, Target is the goal of the inspiration phase. Um, I should say for trigger, it can be a variety of variables. It could be time, just time elapsed. It could also be uh, negative pressure where the patient is initiating a breath or a certain amount of volume of air. Um, The target is generally a tidal volume or a pressure achieved in in your lungs 
And I call this the goal. That's the ideal. So maybe we say we want a 400 cc breath and that's our target. But sometimes the patient has stiff lungs or other things are happening where you can't reach that target within a reasonable period of time. And so basically you have a cycle variable which stops the inspiration phase and moves you into exhalation. And that's oftentimes time, but again, it could be pressure or volume as well. Great review. The The one thing I want to point out for, for maybe some of the visual listeners is that this kind of the the four kind of phases that that Andrew that you just described they kind of go in a circle right which makes sense because right when one ends we go straight to another so those phases you kind of described they're all going into a circle and it's one of those where it'd be like a never like a never ending loop in a sense <laughs> yes so kind of talking about mechanical ventilation you and we you said in the beginning and i think so did i i think we need to start defining some of these terms um you know we're mentioning tidal volume or you know peep or things like that so um we'll kind of go over some common terms or parameters we'll kind of create a little glossary in a sense and i everyone can obviously google these terms right but if you've googled um ventilator setting terms before sometimes your <laughs> the definition doesn't help you with the answer like you get you get the answer and it's like well i'm still not really sure what that is so that's that's where we come in we'll kind of make it a little more of a of a practical review you know kind of give us a we'll get a little bit of an idea of what's quote unquote normal what may happen to these parameters when we're sick etc so obviously this isn't a catch-all and all be all kind of thing but uh we'll hit some of the big ones here so let's yeah. i think we'll we'll the first one is uh i think one that most of us are probably familiar with which is tidal volume yes Tidal volume is basically, or is, how big the breath is. It is generally measured in milliliters. Um, I will probably say CC so that I don't slur over my words too much. <laughs> um, in general, I think the key thing to know is low tidal volume ventilation. You'll also see that abbreviated as LTVV. Um, this is really the seminal trial of like all of critical care. I've seen it touted as the trial to look at when you look at results of critical care trials with positive benefits as one of the few that is totally unequivocal um, in that what they found is that when they uh, evaluated low tidal volumes versus at the time what was considered standard, they found they stopped the trial early because patients in low tidal volume ventilation group, which is generally six feces per kilo, they uh, had better outcomes on pretty much every level of outcomes that you could think of. And I think what's interesting about this study is that essentially it was a paradigm shifting study because we used to think that it was good to give you higher volumes and that and actually higher volumes and low peak uh, was really part of that. And there's a really interesting article, which I'll talk about more that just came out. Uh, and it's the 50 years of mechanical ventilation, 1970s to 2020, uh, that came out in critical care medicine. And it's a really oh, fascinating. Oh yeah. It's, it's a delight to read, but I like it a lot in that it kind of shows you the shift of, you know, I will say it, uh, assumptions that we make as clinicians. And then it turns out that not every assumption is a good one and so forth. <laughs> so, you know, generally speaking, tidal volume, you're going to think about six species per kilo of ideal body weight. That is originally was in ARDS studies, but really has become uh, a goal for pretty much every intubated patient that you can think of. And I want to put a plug in here. There was an awesome study that came out of France a couple of years ago that showed that a pharmacy run quality improvement protocol uh, 
showing that we can use a calculator and say that is more than six cc's per kilo and then have the team try to make adjustments when possible, but we were able to improve outcomes doing that. So I think that's a great moment for pharmacy interventions. Oh, an awesome highlight there. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. So the next one we've got is FiO2, which is the fraction of inspired oxygen. Uh, room air is 21%. Uh, the standard, in my opinion, that you see in the unit is anywhere from 30 to 40% of FiO2. So if you walk in and your patient's on 30% or 40%, I usually don't think much of it in terms of their oxygenation. Uh, obviously, they're intubated, so we're thinking about something, but I'm not like, oh, no, this patient cannot oxygen effectively. Um, it's important to realize anything over 40% can lead to increased amounts of free radical oxygen species, then oxygen toxicity, and then ventilator-induced lung injury. So we are always trying to, you know, striving to keep our patients under 40% when possible. I also think just a good thing to remember is that uh, when you're looking at a blood gas, you always need to know what FiO2 the patient was on to be able to effectively interpret a blood gas. So a good rule of thumb is four to five times the FiO2 is your PaO2. So if we're breathing 21%, that's why a quote-unquote normal ABG for you and I would be, would be between 80 and 100. Uh, but if you were on 100% FiO2, then we would hope your FiO2 is 400. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good point of I, I like highlighting because obviously the the higher the FiO2 numbers go, you, you, we obviously know that, you know, oxygenation is becoming a problem. Um, but that when you start getting that that 30 to 40 percent when they're when they're on rounds, that generally means we're about to start weaning or maybe something is precluding like their mental status or something kind of keeping them on the on the ventilator. Yeah. Um and then the 21%, if there's any learners out there, that's a great uh, random question that, that us preceptors kind of will randomly like to ask you. And so, you know, you mentioned FiO2 and how it can kind of, it definitely affects our PaO2 and how those kind of play a part. You know, the other thing you mentioned, like the ARDSnet studies, and you'll hear an ARDS, right? Because we went through last time, kind of our P to F ratios. But give us just a reminder there of like, how do we calculate those? Um, because I think if, if you haven't done it before, you have to make one change that'll uh, kind of make all the difference if you're if you're calculating <laughs> these to to have them be correct. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, and that is uh, a mistake that I made multiple times as a learner, and so I definitely like to say this to everyone. So your PaO2 to FiO2 ratio, also known as your P to F ratio, uh, is when you take your PaO2 from your blood gas and you divide it by the FiO2, and you come up with a number. Uh, the careful thing here is that FiO2 is a decimal. So we will say, oh, they're on 30%. And if you try to put in, you know, your PaO2 divided by 30, you will not get the correct number. So you would divide it here by 0.3. Um, and just, a, you know, a brief reminder, you know, anything under 300 would be considered not normal. So you'd move into mild ARDS, generally between 200 and 300. And then severe is generally considered um, 100, under 100. Yeah, it is. A, every person has probably made the mistake at at least once <laughs> throughout. It's one of those once you screw it up once and it 
hopefully it's in a non-public setting. I remember mine specifically was on rounds in the middle of like the 15 person sick you rounds. So hopefully yours was in a better spot, but yes, we're both chuckling because it's like a rite of passage almost. It's like, you know, you have bingo as you become a new critical care pharmacist. This is one of them. It, it absolutely is. And I find that under pressure, I am not the person to do arithmetic, arithmetic for you in my head. And so they're like, you can just do this in your head. And I'm like, no, I can't. And I remember like, yeah, getting it wrong. And yeah, I was like, anyway, I'm always about, you can, you can pull out your calculator with me. There's no judgment. Yeah. Don't you remember growing up that everyone's like, you're not going to have a calculator everywhere you go. Well, it's like, <laughs> Hey, turns out Mrs. Rice that we actually do have it everywhere we go. So we were there. There are some lies from childhood coming back in a big way, but side tangent over here. <laughs> so I think our last big parameter I want to talk about is Pete. Um, which stands for, uh, oh my goodness, now I'm going to lose it entirely. Positive Forgive and po- expiratory pressure here. That's okay. That's go. why That's why there's two of us here. Yes, exactly. I was thinking about this one time a student gave me a very funny meme that had peeps, like little Easter peeps, and then I was down a whole different <laughs> sentence. Um, so, so what is peeps? So uh, it, is the, it is the positive pressure in your lungs at the end of exhalation. So the, the definition is literally in the name. And so if you think about it, if you breathe out right now, if you've ever thought about it, you can force yourself to breathe out a little bit more. You have to kind of use accessory muscles to make that happen and it feels a little bit bizarre. But that extra air you're breathing out is essentially your, your natural peep that you keep, uh, your physiologic peep. From the, and the brilliance of this is, I think when you think about, when you've, if you've ever blown up a balloon, it's really difficult those first few breaths to blow up a balloon. And then all of a sudden it reaches that kind of magic threshold and it becomes super easy. Well, your alveoli and your lungs are very similar to that. And so essentially your body keeps those first few breaths that are so difficult in the lungs all the time so that they're always kind of vaguely recruited and it's a more efficient process that way. And so your physiologic peak kind of allows for that process. Um, I think, you know, good numbers to know, I think of standard values as five to eight millimeters of mercury, meaning very minimal support. However, you know, I often see 10, especially in the surgical unit, especially in patients that are a little bit heavier, you might consider 10 to be a standard number. Uh, I usually when I start seeing double digits, I'm paying attention a little closer and I'm wondering kind of what's going on with that patient. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. However, there's a lot of stuff going on right now with where you're actually measuring transpulmonary pressures and actually personalizing peeps to weigh higher values. I personally have not been in a unit that, that does that, but I'm definitely intrigued at the concept and would be excited to hear from people that use that. Um, I think other fun things to realize, higher peeps can be associated with spontaneous pneumothorax, which can be um, an issue potentially. It can also cause, um, depending on what's going on with your heart, you maybe can see hemodynamic compromise if you have you know elevated intrathoracic pressures, you know, pushing on your heart, that can be something of interest. And then another kind of fun fact that I want to put out there is that uh, essentially when you look at an ABG and you have your oxygenation and you have your carbon dioxide levels and you're wondering what parameter do I adjust for this, this is one of those great things and you will hear the attending say it, you're going to be like, oh, I, I got it. But if you have low oxygenation, the two things you can do is either A, increase FiO2, which totally makes sense. But the other one is you can increase PEEP um, and increase that recruitment. And so you'll hear those conversations. 
On the other side, for um, increasing CO2 removal, you have an inverse relationship with uh, tidal volume and respiratory rate. So if you increase those two, uh, respiratory rate and tidal volume, you will decrease carbon dioxide. Uh, there's another parameter called minute ventilation, which is actually respiratory rate times tidal volume. And so if you increase minute ventilation, you decrease CO2. So a classic conversation you'll hear is that the resident will say, oh, they're a little bit hypercathnic. And the first thing the attending says, is, oh, what's their tidal volume? And all they're getting at is basically like, how are we adjusting their minute ventilation to better manage their CO2? Oh, chocked full thing of things there. Yeah. And that's yeah. a, well, that's a really good way of like, because, you know, when we think about patients on the ventilator, right, especially if, if they came in overnight, right, their ventilator settings, you know, that the, their pneumonia might be getting better. So the whole reason that they get put on the ventilator is improving. So we might be able to make adjustments down on our settings there, right, which would all be good signs. Um, but then, of course, we also see the opposite where things can get worse as well. Yes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I like to kind of explain um, ventilator modes as kind of like a a predetermined pattern of interaction between the patient and the ventilator. And it the, these modes kind of depend on your breaths, whether it's breath sequences um, and those breath control variables here. So what different types of breaths can patients have on the ventilator? And then how do those then play into, you know, some of our most commonly used ventilator settings? Yeah, it's a great question. So I like to conceptualize breath sequences into three categories. One of them is spontaneous breaths that are unassisted. So what I mean here is the patient has intact respiratory drive. They think, I want to take a breath right now. And then they take the breath and it's unassisted by the ventilator. You're not getting positive pressure. Or the, the machine isn't saying, hey, take this breath right now. It's, it's all patient driven. Then on the total opposite side of that would be a mandatory breath that is assisted, which basically means the machine is going to give you that breath, whether you entirely wanted it or not. And it's going to give it to you with some type of pressure assistance uh, within that. Then in between, you can have spontaneous assisted breath. And this is where the patient has some degree of intact respiratory drive. So they are initiating the breath, but then the machine is providing some assistance within that. So those are your three breath sequences, spontaneous, assist, uh, spontaneous breath, unassisted, spontaneous assisted breath, and mandatory breath that are assisted. From there, you can create this combination of, uh, of options. So one would be continuous spontaneous ventilation. So the way I would think about that is if I intubated you right now, and you were totally awakened with the program, you would maybe not like me very much, but you could <laughs> breathe continuously, spontaneously, and the machine wouldn't necessarily have to do anything for you. Um, from there, again, on the total opposite end of that would be continuous mandatory ventilation, which basically means the machine decides when you're going to breathe, how you're going to breathe, and that is what you're getting. And then somewhere in, there, in between there, you have intermittent mandatory ventilation, 
which is where the machine maybe has a backup rate or says you have to take 12 breaths a minute, but you can do whatever you want on top of that. Then we can add in degrees of synchrony. So you hear about synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation, which is where you, the patient, the machine is synchronizing with the patient's respiratory drive. Uh, from there, you have many different variables that you can kind of set within that. And if you've ever convinced a respiratory therapist, I feel like, I call it like the main screen. And I feel like the main screen, if you've been around a ventilator before, you probably could like click the buttons and come up with something that's reasonable to turn it on. But if you can like really get in behind into like these background screens and all of a sudden they're messing with your inhalation to exhalation ratio and all these different pressures and flows and things like that. And that can be interesting and complicated, and it's fun to have them talk to you about it, and it's probably beyond my content level. But nonetheless, it's cool if you can convince someone to do that with you. Um, so I think of pressure support as a very standard mode that we see, which would imply that the patient has uh, intact respiratory drive, and it is providing just a little bit of, of pressure support. You are, so it is assisted, but you're totally breathing on your own. And then... I think of things like volume control, pressure control, pressure regulated volume control, which are going to be, you know, assisted breath of some kind. And then you can add in an extra flavor, uh, SIMV or synchronized intermittent ventilatory ventilation that allows the patient to interact with the ventilator beyond that point. Um, and then there's many different combinations within that that is kind of beyond the realm of today. But I think uh, my two pearls for you are don't ever just say the patient is on SIMV. Because someone is going to say, you can never just be on SIMV. You have to be on it combined with something else. So it's always SIMV slash CRVC. You're always SIMV slash volume control. So that's my first pearl. Uh, second pearl is because of all this, there is the set respiratory rate, which the machine says you got to have 12. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what your patient is doing. So they could be breathing 20 times a minute, but the machine is set at 12. So I think always knowing the difference between that. And I think that's an important one. Oftentimes, um, I would say, how about those training in the medical world will sometimes mistake this. And so you will hear about the patient's breathing 10 times a minute. And you're like, really, 10 times? And then you look and the patient's actually breathing 30 times. Yeah. And it's because they're reading <laughs> like basically the backup rate versus like what the patient is really doing. Um, and I have definitely fallen for that a few times where I was like, really? Oh, my goodness. They're very sedated. And then they're definitely not. So that's a, kind of a nice, a good thing to always look at. Another one that I have actually, um, and you know, it's like really fun when you can teach your team some cool thing. So I'll give away my cool thing that sometimes I can teach people. But on many ventilators, there is a like a at least on the ones that I've worked with, it's often a green line that shows uh, the patient's breath. Uh -huh. But if you look at the bottom, if the patient initiated it, it'll be pink or some different color. And so if it's pink in that really, in that in a little initial phase, that often, that usually means the patient initiated that breath. So you can look and be like, oh, they're initiating all their own breath. So they initiated half the breath. And you can look at that little pink line. And I think that's kind of a fun thing you can sometimes teach people. Um, my final pearl is that we, in the adult literature, we really thought SIMV was going to be like the coolest thing since sliced bread because the patients were going to be able to like basically get stronger by breathing more on their own. And it was going to decrease time in the ventilator. We had all these grand plans for SIMV. And then it turns out that that's really not the case. And that actually, when you put patients on SIMV, although it may be more comfortable at times, they tend to be on the ventilator longer. So you don't see it used as much in 
I would say pulmonary ICUs. We had we had grand plans for it, and they kind of crash and burned a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, well, absolutely. I love I love the tip on the ventilator screen. Everything you're describing makes sense from at least ones that I've seen before. So I I love that. The next time I'm in, I'm gonna have to go kind of take a peek at them and see. Especially for the visual learners out there, that's really cool. You can kind of see like, oh, they tried to breathe three times in between their their two preset breaths by the ventilator. Right. Right. And I think that is very cool. And I was, I don't know, I've been pleasantly surprised when I can te- teach an experienced ICU nurse that or something. And I'll take my, my cheap thrills where I can get them. Especially if you're doing that to the experienced ICU nurse where it feels like they sometimes know almost everything. Yeah. Kudos to yeah. you. Love that. I, thanks for sharing. I feel like you just shared your like your favorite bagel place or something with us. Just, everyone's gonna it's be... a little bit like that. <laughs> so... The ventilator can assist, you know, we've mentioned kind of assist breathing and they can do either pressure or volume control. So how do these differ and do we have one that's, you know, generally overarching that's kind of our preferred um, control, whether it's volume or pressure, or is it kind of like most things in critical care that it kind of depends on why they're on the ventilator or what's going on with the patient themselves? That is a, a great question. So I think of kind of my three, maybe most standard ventilator modes that I, that I see most commonly in my own practice being volume control, pressure control, but really the most, the workhorse of the unit, uh, in my experience is pressure regulated volume control or PRVC. Mm-hmm. And I'll kind of go through all three. I think volume control is important to know because it's really one of the, almost the initial assist control, volume control, or the initial modes that we had. And you'll see it pop up in a lot of major critical care and ARDS trials as the standard ventilator mode the patients were managed on. So I think it's nice to just be aware of what that is. And so essentially what we're saying in volume control is, shockingly, we are controlling the tidal volume. So each breath is the same tidal volume. So if we set it at 400 cc's, you're going to get a 400 cc breath every single time. Um, from there, uh, the way you can think about it is that there is uh, flow, which is the, the air basically going into the lungs. And so essentially what happens is the machine turns on and goes to a constant rate of flow. So the, the, the flow curve is flat. It just turns on at a constant rate. And it basically fills up your lungs, like if you were filling up a glass of water almost, to whatever rate or whatever volume you wanted, which in this case we'll say is 400. Then you move into what is the pressure curve doing. So pressure and volume are directly related. So as the volume goes up in the lungs, as you fill up to your 400, your pressure will be steadily increasing in that system. And so if you look at a volume control set of curves, you'll have a flat constant flow curve, an increasing pressure curve, and then um, you'll have this constant volume amount. Um, I like to highlight this because this actually uh, pops up in at least one of the BCCP uh, CSAP chapters when I was uh, originally studying to take BCCP and they was talking about uh, is all flow constant or accelerating? Is all pressure constant or not? And I remember being like, I know the answer to this. So it may pop up there for you when you guys are doing your various chapters. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other side, pressure control. Pressure control, again, is as it sounds. You have a flat pressure curve. It's a constant pressure. We say you're going to be at 22 and that's the number you're going to be at. The way that I conceptualize understanding this is when you drive in a car and you accelerate on your gas pedal, 
up to whatever speed you want, let's say 70 miles an hour. And when you get to 70, you back off on your accelerator on the gas pedal to keep yourself there. And it's the same with your flow pattern here. So essentially the flow cuts on and you reach some pressure that you want, that threshold, and then the, the flow tapers down to keep you at that constant flat pressure curve. And the volume is whatever the volume is. It's independent of that pressure. And so you will, or not independent, it is totally dependent on the pressure, but it is going to, whatever that pressure is, whatever the volume it takes to get to that pressure, it could change at any breath. Um, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of actually getting to like where a respiratory therapist will let you like put your mouth on a ventilator and you can feel the pressure control versus volume control versus PRVC. I found pressure control more comfortable personally, in my opinion, as an unsedated, unintubated patient uh, sitting around there. But I thought pressure control was more comfortable. The disadvantage of pressure control is you can have a patient that starts off healthy. And so they have normal tidal volumes for a normal pressure. And then they get pneumonia or stiff lungs or, you know, ventilator-induced lung injury. And so they start to need smaller and smaller volumes to reach that same pressure. And so all of a sudden, when we have small volumes, you have lower minute ventilation. You can see elevations in CO2, so carbon dioxide retention. So that can potentially be the issue with pressure control. Okay, a little bit more. Then we move to PRVC. And PRVC to me is the workhorse of the unit because it kind of com combines the best of both worlds. Supposedly, um, I've read somewhere that has less alarms and dinging going on. I don't know. I hear a lot of dinging in the ICU, but supposedly it has less, less of that. But the beauty of it is that it basically, it's a breath-to-breath -breath mode, and it adjusts each breath based on what the patient is doing. And so what it does is it says, okay, you wanted a tidal volume of 400 but we're probably okay if it was 380 to 420, right? And so it starts you with a breath of 400, and then it looks at your pressure, and it goes, ooh, that was too high. We shouldn't do that. So then the next time, it, it does 390 cc's, and then you had a, a better pressure, but still a little too high. So then it moves you to 380, and that turns out to be the perfect pressure for you, and 380 within our range, so all's well. And then every so often, I'll say, well, I wonder if we can get away with a little bit higher volume back to what we wanted, and it'll try that. And so each breath, it adjusts based on um, what it's reading out. But the beauty of this is it keeps you at a constant pressure. So it has a decelerating flow pattern, just like pressure control, but basically a constant volume like volume control. And that's all I got for that. So, so with, with pressure and volume, those things are maintained, right? Like if we're talking volume yeah. control, they're giving the same amount of tidal volume each one. But if they switch yeah. and they're doing like PRVC, it almost sounds like it's a smart mode in a sense. Like they're that yeah. you're that you have a little plus or minus to do that. Is that a is that a decent kind of one line um, difference between them? Because to me, I hear that and I'm like, why would anyone be on just volume control or just pressure control if they have a smart mode that combines them? I Exactly. And I think that's exactly the point. One of the things I think is interesting to realize is that, again, in this awesome review paper, uh, uh, figure one in this critical care medicine review, it shows you that PRVC didn't even show on the scene until 1998, if you can believe that. But wow. this came around. Yeah, I know. Right. You know, I, I, uh, I find that really interesting to realize it's what are we coming on to 20 years old right now? Yeah. But that was around the time that you, know, you needed to have good computers. You need to have good microprocessing skills. And so this paper in particular talks about that, that 
you know, we're seeing smarter and smarter ventilators as we basically have better and better technology. And I think to your point, that's why we, at least clinically, I have seen PRVC the most in kind of my clinical practice or, you know, since I graduated. However, I, I think volume control, I often see it in studies. And I think it just has a little bit more, maybe it's a little bit more, um, you can say exactly what that patient had. They mm. got exactly six Cs per kilo or, or something along those lines. It's easier to be more objective, especially in like a clinical research kind of scenario. That's actually, that's a, that's a really good point, man. Yeah. Big year for 1998. You got Jordan hitting his last shot, the the end of one legend, and then the, the beginning of another with PRVC just passing the torch there. <laughs> exactly. And those are about, uh, about equivalent uh, things, really. <laughs> so um, we, we kind of covered PEEP or the, the positive end expiratory pressure and kind of, you know, thinking about that, that pressure at the end of our expiratory cycle. So is there, do we have something similar that kind of looks or calculates like our inspiratory pressure thinking, you know, out and in with the respiratory cycle? Yes. Um, so I'm going to do my best to kind of go through a series of pressures on a pressure curve that I think are interesting throughout the inhalation exhalation phase. So if you think about it, if you have time on your X axis and you have pressure on your Y axis, your baseline value when you're exhaling, when nothing interesting is happening, is your peak. And then when you start to inhale, uh, your pressure curve will go up because you have more volume in the system, so more pressure is going up. And there is some, you know, magical inflection point. Like if you remember in Algebra 2, you had to calculate at the top of the parabola, whatever that was. And that would be what's called your peak inspiratory pressure, um, or PIP, as some people have heard it called, but I just call it your peak pressure. And the issue with the peak pressure is that it may or may not be overly reflective of the distributed pressure in the entire lung, you know, in your entire respiratory system. And so what you can do is something called an inspiratory hold. And this is basically where you make the patient hold their breath. Um, and this is an intervention. You have to have the respiratory therapist go over and perform an inspiratory hold where you make the patient hold their breath and you allow the air to equilibrate. Uh, throughout the system, and you measure what's called a plateau pressure. And this plateau pressure, uh, there's you know, good values and bad values, and you measure that. And then, of course, you would let the patient exhale, and they'll go back to their peak, and then you'll keep going. So plateau pressures are associated generally with a lung injury. So you, you don't want high plateau pressures. That would be our goal. Um, I think a nice threshold to realize is anything over 30 is considered bad. And so you will evaluate this um, looking to see if the patient has, you know, high airway resistance or so forth. And probably one of the other interesting, you know, fun pearls of this is if you have elevated plateau pressures, you may be in a situation of poor compliance or stiff lungs, or a, a favorite term people like to throw out is, is uh, auto-peep, which I just think sounds kind of cute. Um, but it's auto-peep, air trapping, breath stacking are all kind of the same thing. And essentially what's happening there. And for whatever reason, you have a breath and you take your breath and then you exhale. But before that patient has completed exhaling, you put another breath on top. So that's where the stacking of the breath occurs. And so then they try to exhale some more, but then you put another breath right on top again. 
and that can result in elevated airway pressures and and high plateau pressures. And it's actually a medical emergency. The machine will make lots of noises, and everyone will be very excited. And I've actually seen it where they literally like disconnect the tube from the patient, and you watch their chest deflate <laughs> all of the auto peep that they've given them. So that's part of why we care about plateau pressures. And that is that. That's like five alarms combined into one. You know, you have like yeah. five alarm chili. This is like a five alarm ventilator like emergency. It is. It's yeah. one of those where everyone stops what they're doing um, and goes kind of creates the fifteen person team outside of the room. Yes, yeah. If you want to see the patient's chest deflate, you either got to like go under someone's, you know, under someone's arm or like be on your tiptoes in order to see that because everyone is going to be very excited about what's going on. And I think to that point, you know, one of the things to realize is if you ever have kind of unexpected, if you've altered ventilator settings potentially of some kind and you start to see hemodynamic compromise, you could potentially see that might be a reason. That might be one of the etiologies that's going on. So, you know, and then people like to throw that out there. Air trapping, auto peep, breath stacking, all similar things all have to do with the fact that you have too much air in your lungs. You know, in the the, the ARDSnet study that, that we mentioned in the in the beginning, um, you know, the tidal volume and things is uh, that's kind of the takeaway from that study, I think. But, you know, they kept their plateau pressures and things down as well. I think that's kind of a, a under... Yeah. Um, under-recognized, under-appreciated kind of value there. So I like kind of highlighting that, that, you know, keeping them less than 28 or I think it's ideally 28, definitely 30. I I can't remember if it's, if I got those flip-flopped, but definitely good things to highlight for us. I always tend to round to an even number because I start to get too many numbers mixed up in my head. So I will believe you. (laughs) Um, Now, We've kind of mentioned, okay, here are things that we can help troubleshoot or here are things we'll hear when patients have been on the ventilator for a little bit. What are, how do we know when patients are kind of ready for ventilator weaning? Um, do we have any like parameters or, or numbers or figures that we calculate that's kind of like, yep, they're ready. Cause I think a lot of times <laughs> I remember I, I had a student one time and I said, yeah, you know, I, we finished rounding and it was like, yeah, they're, they're going to do a, um, an, uh, SBT, uh, they're going to do it a, a little bit later. And she's like, really? Like they didn't look ready. <laughs> so it's kind of, so, so what are things we can do to try to figure out, uh, more than just the eye test if somebody's ready to get off the ventilator or not? <laughs> Yeah. So the, I would say, validated, most studied metric or objective metric that we can use is called the Rapid Shallow Breathing Index, also known as the Tobin Index. Uh, Tobin is the guy that wrote the principles of mechanical ventilation. It's a great textbook. Um, You can buy older versions that I think are just as good for like 20 bucks on Amazon. I actually have one on my shelf that I enjoy owning. Also um, have one. Is, yep. It's a, it's yeah. a must get it used, get it, get a one dish and later used. Awesome. I definitely co-sign that. Yes, absolutely. I remember he, he wrote a editorial. I think it was in blue early on with COVID management and ventilators. And I was like, Ooh, Tobin's, you know, he's getting involved. And I remember being very excited to read that. So the rapid shallow breathing index. First, I just kind of want to talk about like the logic of it before we start getting into what are the numbers and the math and everything else. The point is is that if you're taking many rapid, shallow breaths, and I won't do it for all of you, but you can just imagine taking rapid, shallow breaths, that is not a healthy physiologic state. You know, we take generally, you know, under 20 breaths a minute, you know, 12-ish. We take long, deep breaths. 
that's that's normal. So if you see a patient who looks like they're going <laughs> and so forth, that's not good. And so this is a, a metric that basically tells us that. So it is defined as the respiratory rate divided by the tidal volume. And you're looking for a value that's less than 105 breaths per minute per liter. And if you're less than that, they tell you that that's, you've passed the test. I've also had um, snarky respiratory therapists that have pointed out to me that if you have an RSBI that's like 10, that would also be bad. Um, and I think that makes sense, you know. And so I, I've also heard of uh, people have unofficial like under limits where they say, I don't think anything under 50 is good either. So, But generally, you're looking for under 105 breaths per minute per liter. And that is the validated test. And so, okay, when do you do that? So you would do what's called, as you said, an SBT, so a spontaneous breathing trial. And essentially, you give that patient a little bit of support. So, you know, maybe 10 over 5 in terms of positive pressure and 5 being the PEEP. And then you say, okay, go, let's see what you do. And then you let them breathe, and then you calculate this RSBI. And if they're good, then they have passed their SBT, and you can potentially extubate them. You'll also see people cooperate this with, you know, blood gases, what does the patient look like, and so forth. But the RSBI is the best. If, depending on who you work with, uh, if you got, I will say, more seasoned physicians, you may see people talk about what's called a T-piece trial or a NIF. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to point out these are not, these are historical things that are not in current guidelines for um, liberation from the mechanical ventilator and should always be evaluated very warily. A T-piece trial is essentially like you make them breathe through a straw and they get no support. So if you pass a T-piece trial, you are ready to rock and roll. Very impressive. Good for you. But if you fail a TPS trial, doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't be extubated. A NIF is where you have to, like, you have this little device, and it's negative inspiratory force. And so you make the patient breathe in, and then you look at this value. But what I will tell you is that I don't know if you've ever seen one of these things and, like, the coordinated effort that it takes. But imagine you've got, like, your 70-year-old person, maybe a little bit of dementia. They've been, you know, sedated on propofol and fentanyl for the last week. They almost died of sepsis. You're about to extubate them. You're like, okay, now what I want you to do is put your mouth around this little, you know, thing, and then I want you to breathe in really fast, and I'm going to look at this as hard as you can. You can imagine, and they're going to do that at 4 in the morning. You can imagine about how well that might go. So if they pass, in, you know, if they pass in this, wonderful. I think that's very, you know, that's great news. But if they don't pass a NIF, I don't, that doesn't really mean much to me. And I just want to point that out because uh, maybe a personal vendetta, I do not like when patients are prolonged on the ventilator over uh, a failed NIF. Yeah, the, the only time that I've really used or ever done anything per se with the, with a NIF is like our... Um, you know, myasthenia gravis patients, and we're trying to figure out, you know, is this an exacerbation or something of that? And we're getting their NIF score and things. So I routinely don't see it much for our just classic mechanical ventilated patients there. Yeah. I think my other big pearl, just along, along with why are they intubated, um, you cannot, as a learner, but also as a pharmacist, you can't just like, oh, they sell their SBT and then move on to the next patient. Um, you have to know why they failed their SBT. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they fail because they're just, you know, their pneumonia isn't, isn't better yet. You know, their lungs are not better yet. And that, you know, sometimes it just means that they need more time. And that's great. Uh, we're, we're here for them. But sometimes they are truly medication-related etiologies. And so there are multiple. But, you know, things that come to mind are like fluid overload. 
does the patient need diuretics? You know, you can give them 20 milligrams of Lasix for all of $3 potentially and, you know, reduce their time on the ventilator. Um, agitation of some kind could also be a situation where, you know, do they need some type of anxiolytic and then they can tolerate their SVT and then they can be extubated. Um, are they overly sedated because we've had them on a bunch of opiates and benzodiazepines? That's why there is, you know, data supporting spontaneous awakening trials uh, combined with spontaneous breathing trials. Um, you know, potentially the patient has asthma, they just need bronchodilators. So I think always making sure we know like why the patient failed is, is really, you can do a lot of good for your patient just asking that question. Uh, the one, my one maybe other piece of advice is it's nice to uh, whisper that in the resident's ear before rounds, if at all possible, because sometimes they also don't know why. And then, you know, you, you feel bad when the attending goes after them for not knowing the answer. But nonetheless, I think that's a great pearl. You know, I, I think the only, I probably should have led with this in the beginning. I feel like the only other maybe disclaimer at, you know, less for our, our seasoned in practice pharmacists, but if there's any, um, you know, trainees or kind of fresh out of residency, um, folks kind of listening to this definitely don't have a ventilator recommendation be like one of your first recommendations. <laughs> um, like the story of, of, of your, your colleague coming in, I'm guessing that they hold some weight with the unit. They've, they've put some time and recommendations in. So just keep in uh, mind, yeah. just be careful towing into these specialties. Definitely make sure you have a grasp on what's happening. You're not mixing up the two because, um, uh, yeah. depending on who you're doing that with, they might, uh, they might, they may or may not take uh, super kindly to that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, and I think, you know, the classic times that I feel like it's really useful to understand the ventilator are when you have, you know, a, an ABG and someone wants to start acetazolamide and you can just say, Hey, have you like evaluated the minute ventilation at all before we start that? You know, where, where are we going with this? you know, discussing, do we think that, is it, do we need to de increase sedation levels or is there something you can do with the inhalation exhalation ratio before I have to go start a benzo on this patient? Yeah, you know, sometimes I think you can have a really nice way of saying, have we optimized this ventilator before I start making big moves on medications? But yeah, in general, you want to, you want to have some weight, make sure this was in the context of a, a thoughtful, interprofessional patient care discussion. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think you've, this is like playing video games on like master level. You've somehow given us a really good framework of kind of the ventilator and things, not only in, this is one of those visual topics. You've done it in an audio format. We're coming right in in an hour. So, I mean, just kudos, awesome job um, in terms of uh, kind of breaking it down for us. Now, what would you say kind of from the, from the basic kind of intro perspective are some of the kind of biggest take-home points or things that we need to consider from a, a pharmacist perspective here? Yeah, so I will start off with, I want to highlight just a couple of papers. Um, there's a, a guy named Cauley who has written a couple of great review papers on mechanical ventilation. He's a, a mechanical ventilation. He's actually a pharmacist that was also a respiratory therapist. So he's got some really great reviews. If you want to see some pretty pictures and some graphs, I really like his work. And then as I've been kind of um, touting this 50 years of mechanical ventilation from the 70s to 2020, I just thoroughly enjoyed this 
in terms of understanding kind of how far we've come and understanding some of the different aspects of, you know, where we're going and, and all of that. And I thought they did a nice job of at least discussing a lot of the key terminology. At some point, if nothing else, you can kind of go Google it real quick. But in terms of key take-home points, I think one of the things to realize is that it is a big change to move from something like pressure support to PRBC. And then we didn't even really get into advanced mode, but it would be a big deal to move from PRBC to a more advanced mode like APRV or airway pressure release ventilation or something along those lines. And that to me, a big move like that is potentially something you need to involve in your in your pharmacotherapy recommendations. And so, you know, if you walk in and you're all excited to de-escalate antibiotics because, you know, you have cultures back and, and so forth, and they went from PRVC on a PEEP of 5 and a FIO2 of 40, and today they're on APRV with a FIO2 of 100% and, and so forth, and they look terrible, and their P to F ratio has gone, gone way down. It, you maybe are not going to have a ton of luck de-escalating antibiotics, and that probably is very reasonable if something happened to that patient. So I think the biggest thing I would say is I hope that as a pharmacist, you include mechanical ventilation parameters and their uh, general patterns and trends as part of your monitoring for medications. And I hope that you will at least, you know, be able to follow along and smile knowingly when they say, what are the five causes of hypoxia? And you'll be able to say, oh, I know that. Um, and maybe even be able to follow along when we talk about, you know, they had issues with oxygenation, so we increased the peak, or we had elevated CO2, so we increased the minute ventilation. And to me, those would be the, the big points. Oh, and RSBI, and the fact that pharmacists improve outcomes on mechanical ventilation by actively being involved with the SBT, SAT process and evaluating title volumes. I think that's awesome. I like when pharmacists are just involved in high quality care, regardless of whether it's directly related to a medication or not. Yeah, sometimes the best medication is no medication at all. I think we've said that before. And, you know, exactly. and, and ultimately, like, do are people going to be an expert in this? No, right? That comes from training and, and, being and, and being involved with the care of these patients over a long period of time. But hopefully, you know, with with this and maybe, you know, reading some of those awesome review articles, Michael Colley from from uh, Philadelphia is just he's written two of them that are just absolute great papers. Um, yeah. But more like, hey, you're you're looking at this blood gas and you're thinking about the patient. It's like, huh, I wonder if they're probably going to go up a little bit on our tidal volume, our respiratory rate here. Now, granted, am I going to be the person that's arguing if we're setting our rate at 16 or 18, right? Probably not, right? But just no. having an idea of, of how, what changes might happen and how do those play a part with our patients? And then can, can we help anything with medications, right? Is our RISB terrible because we've been on a Versed drip for five days and maybe we need to like have a better weaning plan for that or, you know, something like that. All great things. Yeah. I will leave with one other kind of like really one of my funny moments. I was my first big girl job, I'm, you know, six months in. And again, we, a lot of times in this unit, pretty much only use PRVC unless we were using pressure support or we had moved to something really advanced. And there was a patient being managed on pressure control. And I just was so fascinated. Like, I wonder what had happened to the patient overnight that we had changed to that mode. And so the whole patient presentation happens, the resident does a great job, discusses all the things, but they didn't say why the patient was on pressure control. And the attending looks at me and he goes, uh, Andrea, does, does pharmacy have anything? And I said, 
but not really, but just for my own learning, I'm curious about pressure control. And his whole face just changed. And he looks at the resident and goes, um, you didn't mention they were on pressure control. And so then we had to go back and like redo the entire pulmonology or, you know, poem section <laughs> of the patient presentation. And it was quite funny. We ended up changing them over to PRVC. I never really got a straight answer as to why they were on pressure control. But I remember that was the day that that attending and I really kind of bonded. And all of a sudden he's like, do you want to be on the ICU committee and all this other stuff? And I've always thought that I think what it showed in my opinion was that I was aware of kind of the full breadth of what was going on with the patient as best as I could understand. It was just kind of curious and interested. I think he really felt like I was, you know, an ally to the whole experience. And so again, it wasn't me, you know, saying, Oh, I have some great answer about why the patient is or is not on that. I just was aware enough to ask the question. And I've, I've always kind of kept that close to my heart as one of those moments where I think I probably improved care totally unintentionally. Um, and I, I enjoy that kind of thing. <laughs> I I believe that and and paying it forward and all those things I think you're you're very good at that. I think um if anyone is um on Twitter listening um Andrea is by far one of the best follows. Um I think you'll you'll randomly have I think you have um the best like book or literature recommendations. Like I feel like anyone could come out of anything and they're like, Hey, I want a book that really looks like this. You would have about three, three different selections for us. So what, what has, what have you been perusing? What's kind of, I'm putting you on the spot here, but do you have a, a uh, book or two that really stood out that you might want to uh, recommend for the listeners? Yeah. So yeah, I'd say reading is probably one of my true passions. I have kind of an unofficial goal of a book a week. I don't always get that far, but it, it definitely is a, an area that I really love. I think um, books that have spoken to me in the past year, um, you know, anything by Bren Brown is really great, but Daring to Lead, I just, it really spoke to me on its ability to discuss um, it, her thing. Her bit is talking about how, being vulnerable is actually a very courageous act. And I love that in terms of when you think about education, you know, I think that although it's good to, to push learners and stuff like that, maybe even a good pimping session can, there's something to be said for that. I, I like the idea that you're, you're trying to put connection and empathy first. And I found that to be a really powerful read. Um, I just finished why we sleep. And I now feel passionately that everyone needs seven to eight hours of sleep. And oh, it's Matthew not Walker. Your, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And that, yeah. I mean, and it's like, it turns out that if you don't sleep, you are the equivalent of potentially being intoxicated and or like you don't remember things. So I think about residents and they're bragging <laughs> about how they've gotten four hours of sleep. I'm like, you know, I think I'm to the point, if you tell me you got four hours of sleep, I'm going to send you home and have you take a nap and then read a paper because it's going to be a better time for both of us. Because anything I tell you, you're going to forget, most likely, at least according to this book. And I found that really interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of what else has spoken to me recently, but those are probably my favorite, too. I just finished um, some more, I finished Notes from the Underground and Crime and Punishment. So I was doing a little bit about a Russian literature kick. Uh <laughs> I enjoyed them in a, in a, I'm broadening my horizons type way. I'm not sure I would totally recommend it, but I would say daring to lead and um, why we sleep really have spoken to me recently. 
why we sleep is a life changer. I was the person that like, oh, eight hours. Oh, I could do that like once a week or something. And now if I'm getting less than seven, it is an emergency. I'm figuring out how I'm going to get sleep later in the day. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Everyone should definitely listen. Yeah, because you used to think of, I don't know if you did as a resident, but yeah, it was like a badge of, like a badge of honor. Look at me yeah. rolling in five hours of sleep, still killing it on rounds. Or I was like, realistically, I probably was forgetting 800 things that I didn't write down because I was so tired. Yeah, I, I, I really cannot say enough about, yeah, that book was definitely very, very powerful to me in a way that I'm almost tempted that as a, if you come on my rotation, I might make you keep a sleep log because I feel like that might be the most important thing I can do for your your mental health, your physical health, and actually patient care. I think you will take better care of patients <laughs> if you if you slept. Um, and so, yeah, I really, I thoroughly enjoyed enjoyed that one. Yeah, I, I really can't say enough good things. My other, just overall, I love everything by Adam Grant. So, if you haven't read Give and Take, which is really about basically how professional generosity will actually improve your own career, but improve the careers of other people. I thought that was a beautiful read. And then his most recent think again, just on intellectual humility and thinking through things. And I think in the era of, you know, COVID trials and, you know, you have all this stuff coming out. And I think that book in terms of how to spark meaningful discussion, I was very, I really enjoyed that a lot. Awesome recommendations. I think that, um, you know, we'll, we'll tweet a link out with some of these ideas, but put a plug. Don't buy these from Amazon. If you're going to get them, support your local bookstore, go to bookshop.org. You got your library, all kinds of things. Amazon will be fine without you, but our, our small independent, uh, bookstores might not. Um, Andrew, with that. I appreciate you taking the time today. Just awesome, awesome stuff. You're one of the one of our favorite friend of the pods and recurring guests. Um, for those wondering, you know, we mentioned uh, uh, the uh, Andrea's um, you know presence on Twitter and things. If you want to follow her, it is at Andrea Sikora. That's S I K O R A. Andrea Sikora. Um, yeah, Andrea, thanks again. Always appreciate you and all of your awesome insight, fun facts. You're, you're one of our, one of the favorites. So uh, appreciate you. Uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. So as always, um, open to feedback, positive or negative, and guest or topic ideas. Uh, Twitter at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com show notes, um, as well as a good reference list with some of those awesome review articles Andrea said. Those will be in the podcast episode description, as well as our website, pharmacytodose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.